in the room, our hearts resonate with the fact, the declaration, the proof positive, power over death and the grave in world history when Christ our Lord was raised from the dead. All of life and eternal life hinged upon the reality that Christ was, became a man, was born of flesh while fully God and satisfied the terms of the covenant, lived a perfect life, died in our place, and then defeated death once and for all and rising from the grave. And this act, in this sovereign act of covenant history, both satisfying the judgment, the redemption, the punishment, and the wrath our sin deserved, and declaring victory, victory over the wages of death as he rose from the bonds of that grave in just three short days. Father, remind us of the reality of the power of the gospel and the finished work of Jesus Christ and becoming a man and taking on the sin of the world and dying in our place and being buried for three days and raising from the dead and ascending unto glory and now ruling and reigning forever over his enemies, subjecting them one at a time under his feet until the glorious kingdom is consummate once and for all with every redeemed and resurrected saint joining him in glory one day to sing praises like this forever with no darkness or shadow of turning, no stain of sin, no limitations of a fallen world, no pain, no sorrow, no weakness, no regret, no fear, no discouragement, no hardships, only the glorious world that you designed in the first place and your people offering praises to your holy name. Lord, this, this day, as we are on our journey between now and that point in history, I pray that we would find in your holy word sufficient means to grow in godliness and to be more confident in our faith, to be more uh, aware of the connections in Holy Scripture, to be more grounded in the full testimony and counsel of God, and that you would use the proclamation of your scripture to convict of sin, to cause us to walk in righteousness, and to boldly proclaim the message of hope in Christ alone to a world that's lost and dying. In all of this, we pray that you would be glorified, even as your people are encouraged. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. Today, what a glorious privilege we have. What an incredible gift the Holy Scriptures are to us to provide for us the foundation for our perspective, to give us means of growth in godliness and in understanding. And it is my prayer that the Spirit will use this time to do exactly that as we turn to His Holy Word. If you have your Bible with, would you turn over to Genesis chapter 17 today as we continue in our Genesis series covering two major portions of 17 under this title, Confirmed by Sign. That is, covenant confirmed by sign. The covenant that God makes with Abraham, that decree and that establishment of relationship, and the terms of that agreement between two parties, the sovereign God and his called out son Abraham, was confirmed in Genesis 17 by the sign of the covenant, even circumcision itself. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to reveal the significance of circumcision in the context of covenant, to see how the scriptures expound and explain and reveal to us some of the mysteries of what is represented, what is symbolized, what is communicated in the covenant sign of the covenant of Abraham, circumcision in the context of these events. With your Bible open to Genesis 17, out of reverence for God's holy word, would you stand as you're able and let us hear God's scripture proclaimed in our hearing today, beginning in verse 7. Quote, 
And I will establish my covenant between me and you, God speaking, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Verse 14, and any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then let us pick up with the obedience of Abraham in verse 22. The scriptures continue. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house and, brought with his, and bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that, every, that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Verse 26, that very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Thus concludes the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. <clears throat> this morning, we acknowledge by this example and then we're reminded by other references in scripture that covenant signs often accompany the revelation of God to His people, even from the earliest pages of God's Word. At times, individuals would ask for a sign, in fact, from God to confirm His Word. I'm reminded of the faltering faith of Gideon. You remember when God called him, he said, well, if this fleece is wet and the ground is dry, if the ground is dry as the fleece is wet, and there are multiple signs, that is, Gideon was seeking for tangible evidences that he could materially verify with his senses that would indicate, in fact, God was going to be faithful to follow through on his promises. And indeed, God was calling him, and he had re more reason than ever after seeing those signs that his promises, his word, was confirmed. So at times, individuals would ask for a sign from God, such as this, and at other times, God would confirm, he would present his word accompanied by signs unsolicited, by his people. God sends, for instance, a bow, a rainbow in the sky to confirm to Noah something. Kids, can you answer this question? What was the message of the rainbow? The message of the rainbow reminded Noah that? That you will never flood the earth again. Very good, thank you. That God would never flood the earth again. So this was a physical sign, one you could see with your eyes. And that sign remains after a rain and, or during a rain when the sun shines through and so forth. There are rainbows even in our experience. 
And as Noah looked at that rainbow and was reminded of its significance, so we can do the same today. It's a tangible representation of a spiritual reality. God sends his bow in the sky to confirm to Noah and to us that he will spare the earth whole-scale destruction by flood. He establishes many memorial ceremonies and rites, furthermore, in the worship prescribed, prescribed in the tabernacle. And the assembly of the people for the worship in Old Covenant terms, there are similar reasons for the various types and shadows, the various ceremony, ceremonious you know, rites and rituals, the sacrifice, the furniture of the tabernacle, and so forth. A sacrificial lamb, for instance, confirms, it is a covenant sign, if you will, that God will provide a substitute sacrifice, a vicarious, which means in the place of another, atonement. Do you remember when Isaac and uh, Abraham ascend the hill in Moriah, and what does God do? He gives a substitute sacrifice. He confirms his word that he will provide a lamb by entangling a ram in the bush. And thus that ram and all the sacrifices, the Passover lamb, all of these pointed to as covenant signs the fact, the promise, that God would provide atonement, substitutionary punishment, vicarious atonement that is in the place of another by a sacrifice to come. Similarly, the tabernacle furniture proclaims that through his ordained priesthood, we have audience with the holy God. How holy is God? Well, if you were to look at the altar in the tabernacle, I failed to mention this back when we were in Psalm 106 last week, but that altar had gold plating, and guess where that gold came from? Well, the censers of 250 false leaders or false priests who were consumed by fire when they denied God's anointed servant, Moses, when they defied God's authority, they were consumed with hellfire, as it were, and their censers, their instruments of false worship, were beaten into gold plating, and that gold plating was to cover the altar, and thus, every time a priest would walk into the tabernacle and see the gold plating on the altar, it was a sign, as it were, of the holiness of God. That is to say, worship of any other god, or worship by any other means, is deserving of hellfire, deserving of judgment. Never forget it. Thus, even the tabernacle furniture proclaims the truth that through his ordained priesthood, the once and for all, ultimately, holy high priest, and his once and for all, ultimately, sacrifice that was pictured of old, through these means we have audience with a holy God. A holy God whose presence we couldn't otherwise enter without immediate, just judgment and destruction. These are the messages of these various signs. Just giving you sort of an overview to illustrate the purpose of covenant signs. Therefore, by symbol or by object lesson, covenant signs illuminate spiritual realities to the people of God, and they do so by virtue of another concept. Big word, but it's, I think, easy to understand. Divine condescension. Condescension in theology is the concept that God who is over and above and transcendent and beyond our imagination, our comprehension, and our experience, he accommodates himself, he stoops low to make his truth and glory known. Now, uh, many of us have small children. We have a two-year-old in our household. And you may find yourself using an object lesson to teach them about an abstract reality, let's say. So you pick up a baseball, right? And you hold it in your hand. You look intently in his eyes. You hold this up and you say, ball. And he looks at it, and then he looks at you, he looks at your lips, he hears with his ears, and he says, bah, bah. And what are you doing? You're using the object lesson of a ball to associate something tangibly that he can see with the abstract concept of 
the idea of ball and so forth, or a truck or a car. You hold up this car, the two-year-old looks at it, and you say, car. And in one word, he answers, car, or car, right? So that's a very basic illustration, but a very apt one. You see, compared to the amazing truth and genius and otherwise unapproachable holiness of God, the only way we can understand a bit about him is if he is gracious, patient, loving, caring enough to stoop low to us, to hold out a covenant sign like the rainbow and say, mercy, rainbow, mercy, or to hold out circumcision and to say, covenant, covenant, or to hold forth the altar and say, holiness, holiness, the communion table, to say, unity, fellowship, at baptism, to say, resurrection, and death. So you see, we, as finite creatures, human beings, infantile, like babies in our understanding, can benefit, we do benefit, from God confirming his covenant by sign. This is in part their purpose. By symbol or object lesson, covenant signs illuminate spiritual realities. They are God accommodating himself in all his glorious holiness, his otherwise incomprehensible majesty, stooping low and using a simple object lesson, as it were, to communicate something of himself to our own understanding. Our finite limitations God builds a bridge across them to make his glory known, to reveal himself, to communicate his truth to his people. Thus, they are a picture of his loving kindness, his steadfast love, his fatherly care for his own. So as we think about this, it is clearer than I trust when we see the concept of covenant signs in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was revealed with many attending symbols, signs, and ceremonies. And they were God using, they were manifestations of truth that God utilized to represent, to illustrate, and to symbolize gospel realities. Though most of these, these pictures, these covenant signs as it were, have grown obsolete, they've given way to the advent of their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't have a day of atonement where we sacrifice a ram anymore or send one into the wilderness. Why? Because the once for all Lamb of God has come and has been killed, and so we look to Him. Therefore, animal sacrifice is rendered obsolete. That covenant sign has given way to its fulfillment, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yet there does remain two covenant signs for us today, and one of them is related to our text. So young people, another quiz. What are the two covenant signs that we still have in the church today. Does anyone know, kids? Shout it out if you know. Two ordinances are sometimes called, or two sacraments, two covenant signs that we still have in the church today. Oh yes, the bread and the wine. So the communion table, the Lord's table is one. What's the second one? Baptism. Baptism is number two. So nevertheless, though many of these signs have grown obsolete, yet we still have communion and baptism. And like the signs of old, these both serve to illuminate the gospel to us yet today. They are God stooping low. They are God communicating to us through object lesson uh, the realities of the gospel, of his holy word and truth. We can appreciate these, may I suggest, all the more in light of their precursors. 
we learn from the testimony of Scripture that circumcision was a precursor to baptism. So a more broad understanding of the significance of baptism is available as we understand the covenant sign and the covenant of Abraham, even circumcision. Our text today, therefore, documents the history of baptism beginning with the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And let me give you a heading. Circumcision, circumcision signifies the following. Number one, covenantal lineage. Number two, covenantal identity. And number three, covenantal atonement. So what is the meaning? What is the message that is conveyed through the covenant sign of circumcision? Three things, covenantal lineage, covenantal identity, and covenantal atonement. Three simple main points today. Before we get into them, I want you to notice the shape of our text. The two major references to covenant sign come in this form. Number one, it is God's perspective to man revealing the covenant and the covenant sign in the first place. This would be Genesis 17. Let's pick up in about four. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And he continues to detail that covenant, and then he proceeds with the covenant sign, identified with the covenant in verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So the first portion is the revelation. It's the knowledge of God of the relationship that he will establish, maintain, and signify between him and his servant. And then the second portion, centered on the theme of circumcision, is Abraham's response or obedience. This picks up in verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael's son and all the, uh, those born in his house or brought, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. So this two-part structure is indicative of covenant. There are two parties. God, he is the sovereign. He's the one who establishes, sets the terms. Then there is the lesser party, Abraham, and he is the one who in faith obeys and demonstrates his faith in God's provision of covenant and sign by his obedience and the narrative picks up in as much in verses 22 through 27. Number one, in Abraham's obedience, what is he recognizing? First of all, he's recognizing that circumcision signifies covenantal lineage. Verses 7 through 14 in there emphasize this over and over. Notice in verse 7. Or let's go back to verse 4 again. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So there is a promise that implies lineage. If Abraham is going to be the father of a multitude of nations, this of course is impossible if he has no children. And, at this, and at, the, at this time, by virtue of the covenant relationship between him and the appointed queen of the covenant, mother of the covenant, if you will, so to speak, Sarah, they have zero children. And then we continue. No longer shall, verse five, your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, which means, as we have studied, the father of a multitude or the father of many. For I have made you, you, the father of a multitude of nations. So you see in these verses, circumcision signifies, it symbolizes, it represents the promise of lineage. Circumcision signifies covenantal lineage. Now, let me just note a, uh, something in passing here that will be helpful as you seek to understand a solid hermeneutic when discerning covenant sign. In verse 10, uh, the emphasis shifts 
from the subject or from the objectivity of the covenant, the substance of it, to the sign. Nevertheless, it's referred to as a covenant as well. Let me uh, describe it this way. I asked the question, what is the substance of the covenant? And in summary, I submit to you, it is in verse 7, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So I will be your God, you will be my people. That is the substance of the covenant. And then, of course, it's expanded and emphasized and established according to these promises. But God will establish a relationship with his people through his prescribed, his ordained means. That's the substance of the covenant. But then we go to verse 10, and we have this language. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So the question arises, is circumcision the covenant? Or is the promise, I will be your God and you will be my people, the covenant? And in some sense, the answer is yes to both. That is to say, there is a distinction, but there is also a close association. The sign is closely associated in the covenant, so much so that it's used as a placeholder. In other words, when circumcision is referred to as the covenant, what is intended there is everything that circumcision represents. This is true in the New Testament as well, and this will help to clarify. Peter says, baptism now saves you. But then he goes on to say, not the mere removal of water of, of dirt by water. So what does he mean there? It's an association. What he means to say when he conveys baptism now saves you is that baptism and all, all that baptism represents saves you. And this is the way the Bible speaks about covenant and sign. They're so closely related that although they are to be distinguished, that is, the sign of the covenant does not actually convey, though some in their errant view think that they actually convey justification, one is not saved via the act of baptism. Nevertheless, that act represents something that is the work of God in salvation, which is a matter of the heart. So there's a close relationship between the external symbol and the internal reality. And such is the case in uh, Genesis 17. So it represents lineage, a generational promise. Yes, in fact, Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations. We have seen his faith waver in this, have we not? I mean, he has questions and who can blame him? In verse, chapter 15, verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Abraham said, though, O Lord God, how will you give me, or what will you give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And so you can see Abraham's concern. The generational promise is as of yet unfulfilled, and at the time of Genesis 17, he is 99 years old. So you can understand his question, what will you give me? And the answer is several fold. In Genesis 15, what God gives Abraham is a covenant ratification. He literally cuts a covenant when the animals are split in pieces and swears an oath to himself that he will be destroyed, that is, God will be slaughtered if he does not keep his promises to Abraham. That's what he will give him. But furthermore, he will give him something else. He will give him a covenant sign. So as sure as this mark remains on your body is as sure of the promises of generations moving forward. And then thirdly, of course, this is the fulfillment. He actually gives him a son. But you see, in the way that God communicates his truth, 
that in order for our faith to be emboldened and strengthened in his intermediate phase, he will graciously condescend, stuplo, to give us covenant signs that remind us of his future plans and build our faith that they are actually true. When you were baptized or when you are baptized, if you haven't been, I would urge you to repent and believe if you have not. If you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, be baptized. There is great value in it. Why? Because in your baptism, you literally experience something that reminds you of a future in part yet to come. As you are under the water and then raised up from the waters, as it were, it's a picture of resurrection. You are resurrected from the waters of judgment. And this builds your faith. You can say to your soul, if you should ever doubt, just like I was lifted from the waters of judgment and death, symbolized in my baptism, so I will raise from the dead on that glorious day when the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes to get all of his blood-bought elect from the grave. And so the covenant sign of baptism allows us to proceed in faith because we've had experienced a sign from God, a gift from God, a symbol, as it were, that reminds us of the absolute existential, that means in your experience, surety of what is to come. And so circumcision served this purpose, generational promise. You see, it was difficult for Abraham to believe he would have a child because his wife was up, you know, in her late 90s, and so was he. And so what will you give me? Well, God was very clear. This promise demanded faith in God's supernatural fulfillment through actual, literal, human reproduction. Hence the nature and application of the sign. The sign of circumcision, therefore, was an inescapable reminder, uh, if you will, on the very instrument of procreation, that certified to Abraham that he and his body was consecrated for covenant purposes. And so this would be a significant sign indeed. Why? Well, because it involved pain. It involved discomfort. It involved persuading many in his family and even those who are in association with him. Yet in, in as much or in all of these things, it would serve the purpose to be a perpetual, inescapable reminder of the physical, literal reality of the seed of the woman continuing the promise of the significant son and a child who would be born of a womb yet dead as by resurrection, Isaac, from the womb of Sarah. This lineage certified by covenant sign reminded Abraham that God would continue his literal, in time, incarnate, if you will, that is, in flesh, just like Jesus took on real flesh, God would continue his significant son legacy. Kids, you remember the legacy of significant sons? Who stood for the legacy of significant sons? Does anyone remember? Was it Shem, Ham, or Japheth? Shem. Shem, that is correct. Shem was a significant son who was called forth from uh, Noah's lineage, Noah's kids, his posterity, to carry forward the seed of the woman, as it were, prophesied in Genesis 3, or the lineage of the significant son, the messianic line. So here's a few standout examples. You have Seth, the child of promise born to Abraham, or to, born to Adam and Eve. You have Shem, the child of promise born to Noah. You have Abraham, the child of promise. You have Isaac, the child of promise. And you have David and then you have Jesus, skipping a bunch in between. However, circumcision signified covenantal lineage. 
The generational promise would be fulfilled by literal procreation and it would be fulfilled by continuation of the significant son's legacy. Uh, circumcision signified preservation of the seed of the woman who would ultimately crush the serpent's head in the birth of Jesus Christ as Matthew identifies him, and it is no accident, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Finally, under lineage, circumcision represents the deed to the promised land, as it were. There is a place of belonging, there is a habitation, there is a communion where God dwells that is certified by the covenant sign. We read this, there's a, land, there's a seed promise and a land promise connected to the Abrahamic covenant. It says in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And note verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring, that's kids, of course, after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So the mark, if you will, of citizenship and, uh, of, and uh, occupation or habitation or welcome in Canaan was connected to the covenant sign. This was the covenant uh, sign therefore communicated that this was a set apart people who were marked by God in communion. They were a set apart people in communion with their God in the place of his habitation. This is the meaning of land uh, in addition to seed. So the significance of the land is God through his means of atonement signified by his signs, will set apart a people who have permission to be in his presence without being killed by the fires of judgment, like happened in the rebellion of Korah, but can freely enter through his priesthood and through his means of bloodshed atonement into the land, which is the place of reconciliation, fellowship, cohabitation, if you will, between a holy God and sinners. And so that identifying marker of uh, circumcision was a physical sign of that spiritual reality. Thus, circumcision stood for, it signified, covenantal lineage. Generational promise, significant son legacy, deed to the promised land were all tied up in that picture. Second major point, identity. Circumcision signifies covenantal identity. Verses 10 through 13 emphasize this. Again, Genesis 17. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. For you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then it even details uh, how, when a, a newborn is to be delivered over to the sign, as it were, to receive the sign. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not in your offspring, of your offspring. So here we have in this covenant sign a binding uh, experience, if you will. Though there are different people from different areas, foreigners, those who are native born to Abraham by their physical birth, those who are associated with Abraham, even as slaves among his community, all who either were uh, submitted to uh, circumcision as a newborn or submitted to circumcision as an adult, they had this experience in common. 
they were consecrated and set apart through this act, or this act um, represented a consecration and a setting apart as a people who had a specific identity. This is why the sign of circumcision is included with the changing of names. You could say circumcision is a naming rite, or it's a ritual in, ritual in which someone often receives their, a, a new name and always receives a unique identity at this time. So Abraham's name is changed. No longer, in 17.5, shall, uh, you, shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Another name change comes in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And then a third name is assigned in the case of their son, the promised son. Verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So in circumcision, there is a naming right. There is an assigned identity, assigned meaning. There is a purpose for existence that God is sovereign over, and then he grants to his own. You know, we live in a society that is obsessed with identity. And sinful man, secular man, modern man, thinks that he retains the right to identify himself. And we see perversions of this logic run amok all around us. You know, I don't have to be a man if I was born a man. Uh, gender, the, uh, the, uh, rep the, the, uh, those who are in rebellion against God's covenant order tell us, gender is up for review according to the subjective preferences, the uh, mentality of each individual. And so man thinks that he can change his gender into a woman, let's say, or adopt any, uh, any number of made-up genders and so forth. So this is a perverse naming right. In uh, announcing to the world that you have changed your identity, you are seeking to establish your, for yourself a name, an identity, a purpose, and meaning. But is one that you invented out of whole cloth. It is in stark rebellion against a holy God, and it stands worthy of judgment. And this is true in every case. Let's say a less obviously to the Christian mindset perverse example, someone who finds their identity in success and ambition in their career ladder. In other words, in their mind, in their consciousness, to be themselves, they feel good about themselves, they wrap all their meaning and significance around success in a particular career uh, pursuit and so forth. Their hopes, their dreams, their ambitions, their pursuits and so forth. What are they seeking to do? Make for themselves a name. Establish for themselves an identity. It's an individual example of what the Tower of Babel was corporately. What are we going to do? We are going to declare that we deserve a new name because we have built something impressive by combining our efforts, even a tower to reach the heavens as it were. We will make for ourselves a name. We establish ourselves in purpose, meaning, and identity. All of these examples I have just given you are rebellious ones. You owe your life, breath, and existence to a God who is sovereign over you. He has created you and purposed you for his glory. Therefore, in baptism, as it were, you receive a new name. Just as you received a new name associated with circumcision in this text. And when I say name, I don't necessarily mean literal. I mean purpose and identity. 
You are Christ now. You are a new creation. If you have been raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you've been identified in uh, Christ in your baptism, you are new now. You are a new person. You belong to a heavenly father. You were purchased by the blood of his son. He has redeemed you to bring glory and praise to his name. Your home is in the new heavens and new earth one day. Your brothers and sisters are sitting around you and the redeemed people of God. And your goal in life's pursuits, even your vocation, is to bring glory to him by fulfilling his call to take dominion for the sake of his kingdom advancement, so on and so forth. You have been renamed if you are a believer. And this is what circumcision signified. It was a naming right that identified a people with a new father, a new hope, a new dwelling, a new realm, a new source of atonement, a new purpose and meaning for their existence. Furthermore, under identity, we, know, we can see quite clearly how circumcision would be a mark of ownership. Imagine like a tattoo. People get tattoos as identity markers. They want to be, obviously, they're looking, you know, I, I've said in the past that the popularity of tattoos represents, in many cases, an identity crisis that people are looking for permanent solutions for. Well, God gave a permanent identity marker in circumcision to his people, and this is the idea of the cutting of covenant. It was related to a branding ritual whereby a slave would be marked permanently as the property of his owner. And don't get it twisted. Don't bypass this profound reality because our world is so anti-slavery right now. One of the reasons that our world is so fixated and obsessed with this ostensible evil is because they reject the very categories of hierarchy, submission, and authority in Scripture. The fact is that if you are a believer, you're a slave to Christ, and he has the right to mark you. And so he does, spiritually speaking, in baptism, and so he did, literally speaking, in circumcision. It was a mark of identity, ownership, and belonging. It was akin to branding, certifying that a slave's relationship was tied to his master in spite of his preferences otherwise. He, it was a permanent, it was a fixed point of his identity, an indelible proof of his affiliation. This mark of ownership represents union to the covenant head. Identity with Abram, Abraham and Abraham's God was signified by circumcision. It was a right of initiation, furthermore, a naming right, mark of ownership, right of initiation. And this is similar, think of the analogy of marriage. In a marriage, you stand before uh, an array of witnesses, you solemnize vows, and then later that marriage is consummated, that consummation is forthcoming. So this, these initiating or beginning rites in marriage are significant. They define a new covenant or relationship. And in a similar way, so circumcision was a rite of initiation. It inaugurated, it represented the beginning of a relationship or a commitment and so forth. Final point this morning, circumcision signifies covenantal lineage, identity, and then number three, atonement. And here we have a direct line to the gospel as we acknowledge these uh, truths communicated. Now, uh, you might ask yourself, well, uh, this circumcision, what a primitive act of ritual bloodshed. You know, I can't imagine that having any significance or meaning. Don't be so quick. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And this is certainly what this signified in part. 
Hence you shall be, verse 11, circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And what is signified in that covenant? In part, that cleansing of sin requires the shedding of blood. This is the message of Hebrews, the message of the gospel, the reason why Jesus came to die, because the cleansing of sin requires the shedding of blood. And this signified as much. All blood rites, may I submit to you, and the ceremonial law of old pictured a cleansing of sin. The blood was shed by sacrificial animals to communicate to us that a sacrifice must die in our place. The uh, blood was shed on the day of atonement, sprinkled on the mercy seat to signify that without the judgment that sin deserves being satisfied by the death of another, there was no cleansing, removal of sin. In the day of atonement, two aspects of atonement were pictured. In theology, we call them expiation, which means removal, and propitiation, which means to absorb the wrath uh, a sin deserved. So when the animal... That would, uh, symbolically, when the priest would grab the animal, he imputed, as it were, or transferred the sins onto that animal, and it was sent into the wilderness. In that case, that's a picture of sin's removal. But the other animal was slaughtered, and that's a symbol of propitiation, or sin's judgment taken by another. Substitutionary, substitute, sacrifice, death in the place of another. So circumcision, inasmuch as there is bloodshed accompanying it, represented a cleansing from sin. Secondly, what was pictured under, under the heading of atonement is sword judgment as well. Even the instrument of cutting is significant in the message of the gospel. Uh, kids, remind me of this. Uh, answer first, yes or no. Could Adam and Eve go back into the garden, yes or no? Now, what would happen if they tried? What would, what would stand in their way? If Adam and Eve wanted to go back into the garden after they sinned, what would stand in their way? Theo says an angel with a flaming sword. That is correct. Two angels. Very good, Ren. So two cherubim, as it were, which are creatures specifically anointed to guard the sacred presence of God. Hence, there are cherubims in their tabernacle as well. There are cherubims above the mercy seat, symbolizing that you cannot go by cherubims without death by sword unless another is cut for you. So in other words, that access to the place of communion with God always goes through the sword, sword judgment. Now the language of being cut off uh, recurs in scripture. Let me turn you to one cross reference to emphasize this in the minor prophet Micah, somewhere around, um, if you remember the song, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Jo that's how I remembered the minor prophets, so... See how fast I can find it. First one there, you get surprised. Oh, that's Zechariah. Shout out if you found it. Oh, Joel got it already. By a stroke of divine providence, in fact, as we taught the kids this morning, not luck, Joel is able to open directly to Micah, chapter 5. Meanwhile, his pastor brother is stalling, but he has yet to find it. Here it is. Micah, chapter 5, verses... 9 through 13. Notice this language. Your hands shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Uh, kids, you want to play the stop game? Yeah. All right. When you hear the, this, these two words, cut off, tell me to stop, okay? Again, verse 9. Your hands shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your... Very good. Your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. 
And I will cut off the cities, very good, of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off, very good, sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your, very good, your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And it goes on to say, I will root out your asherah, uh, your images, images from among you and destroy your cities. We'll close there. Very good, uh, 100% on the stop game. What the kids recognize is the multiple use of this language, cut off, as a phrase to describe the judgments of the Lord. That is to say, if sin is not cut off from you, then you will be cut off from the covenant. And this is pictured in circumcision. There is something that is cut off from you, which is a picture of sword judgment. Something is removed. And furthermore, it pictures one who must be cut off in your place. And I will turn you in our final reference to Colossians 2 to demonstrate how circumcision itself is associated in the apostolic record with the cross of Jesus Christ. So you see in Micah that because the people had been entertaining the flesh, as it were, which is a picture of sin, they had been entertaining rebellion, uh, false worship, false identities, sorcery, idolatry, breaking the Ten Commandments, then as an act of judgment, sword judgment, God would come in and cut off from them major cities. Sources of economic vitality would be threatened because the people had entertained sin. You see remnants of this provisional act of God in sovereign judgments in history when he declares war on the economy of a once great nation. Why? He is cutting them off from their identity. Very good. Cutting them off from their identity because he is the one who will not suffer in his jealousy, as we studied last week, competitors to his claims of authority will cut them off. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be cut off. Uh, no No more stop game. Thank you, guys. Thank you for your vigilance. (laughs) Uh, Sword judgment, pictured in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 2, Paul is expounding, the the, uh, apostle is expounding the relationship between baptism and circumcision, which by the way will be our major theme of next week's message, tying these two covenant signs together, seeking to understand them in the context of scripture. Colossians 2 is extremely helpful in this regard, verses 11 through 14, case in point. In him also you were circumcised. So there is a circumcision of sorts that we as believers have experienced in Christ. And notice it's a a circumcision of a different quality with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, there's a cleansing from sin that God accomplishes in the gospel that was pictured, signified by the circumcision of old. Now, by putting off the body of flesh, so there we have our sin nature is described as that part of us that contaminates us, that Christ has cut off from us. How has he done this? Continuing in verse 11, by the circumcision of Christ. That is to say, by the sword judgment of Christ, the fact that he was, his side was pierced on Calvary, that he was cut off, so to speak, for us, therefore, the flesh, our sin nature, was cut off from us because Christ did this work of absorbing the judgment our sin deserved on Calvary. Furthermore, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, so there's our association between the two, baptism and circumcision, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
goes on to say that you were also once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So that'd be corruption of the flesh. That would be our association, our corruption, our death, the depravity of sin that clung to us. This was the reality in uncircumcision, spiritually speaking, but after Christ was circumcised, that is cut off for us or re, uh, incurred the sword judgment we deserve. Never, uh, as a result, we are made alive together with him, having uh, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, which was the very instrument of judgment. Flesh, in this analogy, equals sin nature removed by sword judgment. Cutting refers to Jesus' death on Calvary. And baptism, we will learn more next week, is that new covenant sign of inclusion, spiritual lineage, identity, and atonement in Christ. That is to say, you could restructure this message, and I trust we'll see this more next week, in the following way. Baptism signifies... In new covenant fulfillment terms, covenantal lineage, covenantal identity, and covenantal atonement. If you have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have been confirmed by sign as a member of the covenant of Jesus Christ. You have been bound to him in this act, and which represents the essential act of the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart such that your new identity is in Christ. And finally, what is pictured in that act is Christ died for you, and in his death, you have the washing away and the absorbing of judgment of your sins unto resurrection life. Not just your body, but your soul unto eternal life are certified, born again, and certified to be resurrected by that covenant sign that we look to and are encouraged by the new covenant fulfillment of the old covenant circumcision, namely baptism itself. So I've done my best this morning to communicate to you what some of what we can draw by way of significance as to the picture of circumcision in the old covenant. I beg you, urge you, study it more, and look at some of these cross-reference texts as well. And Lord willing, next week, we'll have even more to realize about the sovereignty of God and His ingenious revelation by virtue of His Word, and His Word confirmed by sign. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to have our minds renewed by the Word of Jesus Christ. We pray that the preaching of the word, insofar as it's been accurately, accurately represented, would indeed grant unto us more of the mind of Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what is promised in baptism and pictured in circumcision, that you were cut off for us and that our sin was dealt with and that that which contaminated us has been surgically removed by the cross of Jesus Christ, who is crucified in our place. I pray that this message of hope in his shed blood would be to the encouragement and the equipping of the saints in this room and would be to the calling of, from death of sin unto new life to any unbeliever in the hearing of this message. I pray, Father, that you would stir within the lost through the proclamation of your word, whether it be on the streets in Fargo, as we were earlier this week. We pray that you would anoint your word to achieve the following, or whether it be in the hearing of this message, even this morning, we pray that you would anoint the proclamation of your word so that the lost might realize that their sin deserves sore judgment, but Jesus Christ 
took the penalty of sin if they but trust and believe in him. Lord, I pray that you would give us that clear gospel message, that absolute gospel confidence, and that you would reward us, Lord Jesus, with the great privilege of discipling others who repent and believe on account of the proclamation of your faithful church. Make us more faithful still as we seek to apply your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.